Our sermon today is from Psalm 127. Let's read this passage now. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. A song of ascent of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of anxious toil. For in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when he speaks with them in the gate. These are God's words. You can take your seats. For those who weren't here last week, this is now the second sermon we've had from the psalm. We only covered the first verse last time. From that verse, we considered what it was for Yahweh to be the builder of something, with a particular focus on God building the home or the household. We concluded that at the most fundamental level, the homes that God builds are built with the indestructible beams of love. That being the case, we drew many home-building principles from 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that tells us what love is and what it isn't. The sum of it all was, if a house is built without love, the builders build in vain. We're going to cover the second verse this week and the rest of the psalm next week. Before we do that, though, I want to talk a little bit about my approach to preaching this psalm last week. Someone asked me afterward if I could give some nuance to the things I was saying. Their question went something like this. Were you saying that if we, as parents, fail in one aspect of love, say we are irritable from time to time, that we are building in vain? I understand where the question was coming from. I did present things in a very binary way for most of the sermon, and that was intentional. I said things like, God does not build a house with irritableness, so if we build in that way, we build in vain. It might have seemed like I was saying that a house is doomed to fail if we are not perfectly obedient to the high standards of love, um, and that's not what I was saying. So why did I intentionally avoid bringing the nuance last week? First, it must be pointed out that This is how Solomon presented the realities of building in this world. He presented them in a binary way. Either God builds a house or man does. You can build well or you can build in vain. No nuance given. Since Solomon presented reality in such a binary way, I was careful to represent his teaching in the same way that he did. There was an unnuanced point that needed to be drawn from the text that there is a vain, worthless, fruitless way of building. We needed to leave St. Chad's last week ready and willing to live by that truth. Most pastors today, when given these kind of binaries by the inspired authors, believe it is their job to give their churches the nuance that was lacking in the text. They blush at the black and whiteness of it and try to rescue the teacher from their teachings. Obviously, I don't think that that is the right way to approach this psalm in particular. There is a place for nuance in preaching. There definitely is. 
I don't want to overstate my case, but we have to ask, was there a reason that Solomon left nuance out? Is there something about seeing and comprehending a teaching in an unnuanced way that has a superior way of forming and maturing us, better than if we were to dissect it and systematize it? If you dissect something, you have killed it. You've got to pull its parts apart, but we have living truth here. I think we have missed a lesson from the wisest men of Scripture by not observing their teachings close enough, their teaching methods. Solomon shows us through the psalm a wise way of teaching, a wise way of forming the mind of his hearers by making clear and potent generalizations. This being the case, I want to briefly make a case for this approach to preaching before we begin, because verse 2 presents us with another binary understanding of the world. And like Solomon, I'm going to avoid giving nuance once again. I'm going to teach what is there in verse 2, not what is not there. I'm going to teach as though it is important to conceive of reality as Solomon presents it and not let the possible qualifications undermine the general truth. So why or how could teaching and generalizations be superior to a more nuanced approach? I want to say before making an attempt at answering this that if I fail to answer it sufficiently, we would still have to conclude that there are some undiscovered wise and good reasons for teaching this way since the wisest of all men employed this teaching method. Let's consider the example of irritableness again in the home. Irritableness can potentially destroy your home. The truth is, I don't know if irritableness will bring down your house. But, in light of this sum, I had to communicate that it can and has brought down many Christian homes. Kids will flee their irritable fathers when they get the chance later in life. I needed to communicate that whatever part of your home is built with irritableness is worthless, and that, and that structural weakness built into your home has the potential to bring the whole thing down. Will irritableness be the downfall of your house? I don't know. Though I know you all pretty well, I couldn't know how everyone is building in the privacy of their own section. So in order to let the principle do its work, I left it unqualified on purpose, as Solomon did, and let it do its work in you. I believe that this is one way that um, preaching in an unqualified way has a unique kind of potency. Consider Solomon again, the wisest man to ever live, the man who wrote this proverb-like psalm. He chose to build his house by teaching his son through proverbs, generalizations, binary truisms. He said things like this, Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Really, Dad, if I listen to your sayings, I will not die until I am old. Now, again, Solomon was a wise teacher. He was not dumb. He knew that sometimes submissive and obedient children will die young. But what did he give his son by teaching this principle without qualifications? What kind of a son was he trying to produce, was he trying to form through this generalization? He was saying to him, this is how the world works, son, so live by it. 
Let it form you and direct your conduct. The God of this world, the giver and taker of life, looks on the obedience of children and blesses them with long life. That is a big, stable brick of truth that you can build your life on, son. The exceptions would be irrelevant as the son went on from his father and applied those principles in his life. In Psalm 127, Solomon is doing the same thing with the nation of Israel. He is forming the minds of those who sing it, the people of God in every age, with generalizations to live by. The nuance that could be brought is irrelevant to how the people of God are to direct their lives. They are to sing this song regularly. It's a psalm of ascent. They do it as they're going to the temple, and they are to have it shape their souls, shape their faith, shape the way they live. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, So people of God, make sure Yahweh is the builder of your house. Jesus taught his disciples the same principle in the same way, with binaries, with no nuance. There are two foundations that you can build on, sand or rock, man's wisdom or God's. One leads to a great fall, the other will withstand the storm. Jesus, the God-man, who was wiser than Solomon, was the king of teaching in black and white binaries, totally void of nuance. You are either for me or you are against me. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate your father and mother. Serve me or serve mammon. Fear God, not man. You want to live? You must die. Teaching like this has a way of cutting through all the nonsense, all the cleverness of man. It is a way of bringing wide-eyed clarity. It teaches you what you really need to know, what you need to live by. It is teaching that comes with a somewhat intangible, yet undeniable potency. If the wisest men that ever lived taught this way, it would be arrogant for me to discard their methodology and nuance their principles to death. Like I said earlier, most pulpiteers believe it is their responsibility to qualify the generalizations of Scripture for the health of their sheep. They have not submitted themselves to the model of Christ's teaching, and as a result, they strip the pulpits of some of their God-ordained prophetic potency. They end up giving their sheep food stripped of many of its life-giving, faith-building, courage-sustaining vitamins and minerals. Nuance can also totally ruin teaching. The modern conservative church has been conformed to the worldly wisdom that is on display in the tidy and carefully constructed Gospel Coalition articles and the like. They give their nuanced approach to abortion. Should we be nuanced with that? They share a nuanced approach to transgenderism, calling it pronoun hospitality. It sounds so Christian. They cleverly integrate the secular scientific consensus into their worldview in order to not keep the church from intellectual embarrassment. And we've seen that in, with COVID vaccines and things like that. The church has also lusted after the outward success of the slick and stylish Acts 29 churches and the like that speak with so much acceptability and a kind of cultural coolness. And as a result, our language is almost indistinguishable from the world's. Worldliness is a sin, and the church has become worldly 
through their world-savvy language. We have nuanced and niced our, our way to cultural impotency, and we don't talk like our Lord. What we need now is to return to the bold, prophetic preaching of the prophets of old, the precision of a well-swung sledgehammer. Bringing it back to us here at Redwood, the most important thing for us to do today is to let the general truths of this passage form our minds and set the course of our lives. We should be unafraid to think in binaries, to think in black and white categories that Solomon gives us in the psalm. So with that introduction, we will now come back to our text for the day. Verse 2 of the psalm. Here we have another binary conception of the world, an unqualified truism. May God shape us through it today. Let's read it again, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of anxious toil. For, in this manner, he gives sleep to his beloved. Here, Solomon divides mankind into two types of people. This is how he presents reality to us. There are those who rest easy and those who toil anxiously. There are those who are called God's beloved and those who are not. Those who rest easy are those who God loves, and it follows that those who are constantly engaged in anxious toil are not. The interpretation of this verse is pretty straightforward, but I want to briefly explain what Solomon meant by in this manner. See at the end of the verse, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. The point is that God's people are engaged in the same hard work as the world. They toil in the same manner, but they go about their toil in a different way. Their toil is characterized by restfulness as a gift given to them by God. It is the opposite of the world. Their toil is characterized by constant anxiety and struggle. This is what Calvin said about this verse in his commentary, and I've put it in your sheets there too if you want to follow along with me. Um, It is certain that the word sleep is not to be understood as implying slothfulness, but a placid labor to which true believers subject themselves by the obedience of faith. The unbelieving move not a finger without tumult or bustle, in other words, without tormenting themselves with superfluous cares, because they attribute nothing to the providence of God. The faithful, on the other hand, although they lead a laborious life, yet follow their vocations with composed and tranquil minds. End quote. Feeling any objections rising up within you? Is this characterization too binary? Is this the way that the world really is? I'm sure you understand why I started the sermon the way I did today. This characterization of man's affairs should not be nuanced to death, but plainly accepted and allowed to shape the way we conceive of the faith or how we conceive of the faithful. Build your homes with this truth. Teach your kids this way. There is a marked difference between us and the world, son. We are not engaged in anxious toil like them. We are Christians. We rest in the providence of God. They are the anxious ones. We are not. 
If we build our homes with anxious toil, we build in vain. Isn't that the plain meaning of this text? Quote, It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of anxious toil. We do not want to be the you in this text that displays his or her lack of faith through their anxiety. That you builds in vain. The Bible has a lot to say about anxiety, but unfortunately I won't have time to unpack its teaching on the subject this morning. The direction I want to go for the rest of the sermon is to show how Solomon's understanding of the world squares with our modern situation. I think this will be helpful and practical for us to consider this morning. Would you say that your average non-Christian in New Zealand is characterized by getting up early, staying up late, feeling a constant anxiety about how they're going to put bread on the table? There are some, definitely, with this kind of anxiety, uh, a few, and the number will be increasing as, as our economy goes further into decline, but most people that I work with, your average Joes, are not stressors. Most of them are not insatiable materialists, working ridiculous hours, chasing after wealth. Most of them are content with earning a living and not much more. Most of them know the vanity of worrying about a calamity that might hit their industry. Most people are expecting things to go on as they always have, more or less, and are happy to plan out a simple future for themselves. This is obviously a generalisation, but isn't it true? Uh, Since our passage today says something quite different, it is worth us considering why we don't see a whole lot of this anxiety attached to our work today. While there are likely many reasons, I believe there is one big reason that we will get to shortly. It is implied in our passage that the thing that alleviates the anxiety of the godly is a knowledge of the goodness of our God and his sovereign care for us. The people of God can sleep because they know he is their provider. They are the sheep of his pasture. I would propose that the thing alleviating most of the anxiety around provision in our day is our false god, the nanny state. New Zealanders all know in the back of their minds that if we fall on hard times, the government will catch us. We've collectively developed an effective safety net over the years, and we even call it that. Our socialist government would do the job that our sovereign God used to do. We have all but, all but become... Um, we've all but... Like, sorry, the state has all but become our all-providing God. So instead of looking to God and asking him for our daily bread, we look to the hand of the government. And if our needs are not being met, we make our plea to those who are in power. This false God serves to relieve our anxieties. It has served to relieve our anxieties for some time. But the civil magistrate was not meant to be our provider. God did not make it for that purpose. So it won't be able to sustain that position for long. God will not allow it. If that safety net were to be dismantled, we would see all manner of anxious behavior return. It is not that the anxiety Solomon describes here is not present today. It is there bubbling under the surface waiting to burst out. It is being kept out by a false god. 
if government welfare was to suddenly dry up, we would see the kind of anger that was described in the New Testament when the idols of those cultures were destroyed. New Zealanders would be left with no one to turn to but the God that they hate. When Solomon describes the anxious toil of his day, men and women were engaged in far greater struggles for provision than we are today. We are wildly wealthy, and this is another reason why we aren't so anxious. Back then, some were relying on idols to provide as we are today, but none of those idols were as powerful and well-funded as our chief idol, the New Zealand government. It can even seem as though our government is being a half-decent provider at times. But where does it get its provisions from? What does it truly have to distribute? Its provisions are funded through unjust taxation, i.e. theft sanctioned by the majority or by democratic vote. We have, by the will of the people, traded the natural freedoms and risks that come from working under God for the kind of risk-free living under the state. We love the anxiety-free safety of socialism more than we love freedom and the joy that comes from taking up your responsibilities before God. If your business fails today, it is certainly going to suck, but you'll be okay. You won't starve. If you lose your job through injury or changes in the market, it's going to suck. But you can go, go on the benefit or on the dole and, and survive. We do not experience anywhere near the same anxiety that would have been present at the time the psalm was written because we are safely being propped up by other people's money. But as that money disappears, you can see that we are becoming a whole lot more anxious. It's evident. Unless Yahweh keeps the city, the state will be working in vain. So how should we think about this? How should we live in an age that is about to become a whole lot more anxious? Well, first, and I'm going to make three applications today. First, we should consider this time is an opportunity. We need to be a people that fit the description Solomon puts before us today. When the poo really hits the fan, we must not build in vain as they do and join in their anxious toil. That is not us. We are the ones who work hard and sleep easy. Men, we have the opportunity to glorify God by obeying the instruction that he gave to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. Courage is fitting for the man of God. And when we manifest it, we glorify the God that gave us this courage. He is the reason we can be courageous. We build with courage and hope because God is the builder of our houses. We build houses that don't fall. And as Proverbs 3.24 says, after you have done your work, when you lie down, you will not be in dread. You will lie down and your sleep will be pleasant. Woman, you have the opportunity to glorify God by being like the matriarch Sarah. 
You have become her children if you do good, not fearing any intimidation. First Peter three six. Courage is fitting for the woman of God. Proverbs thirty one twenty five says that she is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. That is our proper identity. That is how we stand out, and in doing so, that is how we glorify God. We should be characterized in a world full of anxious toil as the fearless ones in the culture. So be fearless. Repent of fear when you have it. Cultivate a culture of fearlessness in your home. Build your house with a trust in the sovereignty of God. May that be a great big pillar in your house. Deal with anxiety. Don't excuse it. Trust in the strength of God and not the shifting strength of your circumstances. Second, we have to remind ourselves that God will not allow anyone to take his place as the chief provider forever. He hates all false gods and will not allow them to succeed in our nation or any other nation, lest they rob him of his glory. He is a jealous God, and we are currently seeing him tearing down the gods that New Zealanders have placed their trust in for so long. We trusted in our government that they could save us when COVID hit, and we felt pretty good receiving their salvation for a while. We didn't have to go to work. Yay! And daddy government fed us in the safety of our homes, away from all of those bugs. But when a state stands in the place of God, it is always a terrible provider. This is because this state is God's minister of justice, not of benefits and wealth redistribution. The state cannot love its people like the true God can, because it is an impersonal body. All the state has to minister with is a sword. That's what God gave it. And with that sword, it only has the ability to shuffle around the wealth of a nation by force, wasting the nation's resources wherever it tries to help. Socialism has never and will never work. This is how terrible the government was at providing during the COVID pandemic. It fed us by taking out loans on our behalf And now we and our children will be forced to pay back the debt that we accumulated through not working. They destroy the supply chain and set up all of the inflationary pressures that are driving up prices today, except for maybe what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. Now their means of salvation is starting to bite us, and the true impotence of the government, our false god, is being felt. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Proverbs 12.10 So, let the explanatory power of God's word comfort you in the decline of our nation. We know what's going on. This world is not random. God is in control. We understand why things are spiraling out of control, and we know how things can be fixed through the wise lordship of Jesus Christ. Third and lastly, in this time of change and disruption, we need to be stirring each other up to love and good works. One of those works is courage. 
while the people of God are characterized by working hard and sleeping easy, we don't, we don't get to that space instantaneously or automatically. This will only come through a changed heart and the sanctification of the Spirit over time. The mature in Christ will say with David, God, you, put, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. It's from Psalm 4. When we are being bombarded by things that could cause anxiety, because we are sinners, we are vulnerable. We are not bulletproof. We will succumb to anxiety from time to time. I've been feeling anxious on and off for the past month as I've watched the forestry market tank once again. I know Yaku has been feeling some of this as well since his job is also tied up in the same market. But we cannot allow anxiety to hang about. We need to deal with it. One way that we can deal with it, one way that we can deal with it together, is by reminding each other and encouraging each other with the truth of our situation that we are loved and cared for by God at all times. This truth transcends every anxiety-producing situation. This truth is not trite. It is something that we must live by. God has made this world in such a way that a word fitly spoken can change how we feel. It can turn an anxious heart around. Proverbs 11.24 A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a silver setting, like a gold ring in an ornament of gold, is a wise reprover to a listening ear. A word that wisely reproves you for being anxious and encourages you to be strong and courageous in the Lord should be heard like an apple of gold in a setting of silver. There has been a lot in the sermon that we've covered today, and um, I could make more applications, but we're going to keep it there. Plenty to think about. I've tried to make my applications simple and straightforward, but they are not easy. So let me finish with a brief prayer, and we'll ask God to help us do these hard things. Okay, let's sing together. Psalm 127. Oh, hey.